Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. This episode is sponsored by Try Vegan, a vegan meal home delivery service that is nutritious and delicious and makes your life easier. Based out of New Jersey, they deliver throughout the Northeast. Check out more details on their website, tryveganmealprep.com. And you can get 25% off your first order with the promo code LITYOGA. So go vegan. Good movement and welcome to Redefining Yoga, a Lit Yoga podcast, which is designed to investigate all aspects of the modern evolution of yoga from my background as a physical therapist and lover of movement. My mission is to help everyone find freedom through smarter and safer movement patterns so together we can be uplifted, benefiting all beings. Today is Wednesday Q&A. You ask the questions and I answer with my fearless co-host, Kristen Williams, DPT physical therapist and senior lit teacher. Hey, Kristen. Hey, Laura. Hey, everybody. All right, we'll launch right in. Xteen Yoga Yogaria. I don't always sweat after yoga. Do we have to? Well, I'll just say, first of all, you say after yoga, but maybe you mean during yoga. Um, so I'll, I'll address that. And then after yoga, that could be kind of similar answer. And that is, uh, you don't have to. People, uh, everybody has different thermoregulations. There's people who sweat a lot, like barely doing anything. And they just start sweating and they'll sweat through a shirt. And then there's people who just run a little bit colder and they don't uh, create that same thermal energy that creates the heat um, in your body that makes you sweat. So I would first say, no, you don't always have to sweat. What I would ask more is that, uh, what kind of yoga are you practicing? Because certain yoga forms will elicit more of that heat. I know for sure our lit yoga does that right from the beginning. Almost everybody, if they start off with a sweatshirt or some kind of covering and we do our bridge and then we do our first set of abs, it's like, boom, almost like just automatic. I see everybody taking off their their extra layer because we get right into the center, the deep core, and that generates heat. And that's a real reason, among other reasons, that we do that. And then again, in Lit Yoga, we move in a variety of ways. We incorporate some holds, we incorporate some plyo, and always, again, from that place of connected core. So I haven't met too many people who don't sweat in our class. And in fact, most people comment about that they sweat as much as they do running or you know, even more. 
So I, I, the first thing I would ask is what kind of yoga are you practicing? In addition to the fact that maybe do, do you sweat in other things? Like if you were to go for a run or do aerobics or, um, hop on a bike, uh, you, you know, are you sweating then? Because you just might not be a big sweater. That would, those would be my two things is, you know, what is your thermoregulation um, tendencies? And then what kind of yoga are you practicing? Do you have any add-ons to that? No, I, I agree with you 100%. I definitely remember when I first started lit yoga, that being floored by the difference, I would be drenched in sweat. That being said, after doing it for several years, I sweat less now than I used to. I think our body gets regulated to that. You know, once you can almost, it's almost like a training. You know, I, I don't get me wrong. I can still sweat hard, but nothing like I used to when we first started. You know, I think the body gets used to that. And then you have people like my husband who it doesn't matter. You know, he literally, I mean, so <laughs> mad just by the first set of abs, he's sweating. And so that's never going to change. And, you know, I think there are also certain ethnicities that sweat less. And some sweat more, so it could be an ethnic. Just uh, it's just the way you're made, and uh, but definitely, you know, try some lit yoga. See if that doesn't change it. And then um, you know, and even sometimes being a little bit more intentional with your yoga practice, a little less lazy. You know, you know, moving with some co-contraction can really heat me up. So there are, you know, sometimes I just don't feel like sweating, so I'll be a little bit. I call it like lazier yoga. And then, but if I'm really wanting to work, I can, I can really make myself just by co-contraction, isometric. I agree. Like if you could do some of the things that you could do, like skater hops or something, or you could do like a hold in a bent knee airplane or bent knee half moon and really hold it and, and work on holding everything around the, you know, but all of your hip muscles working, your deep core muscles and it will generate a lot of heat, like you're saying. So there's different ways. And I think that's a really brilliant comment to make sure like as you're, as you're flowing in whatever form you're doing, are you kind of holding together? Are you just kind of not flopping around, but being a little bit less aware of that? Because that too is, you know, that's, that's the path of least resistance. You're not actually using a lot of energy to just move yourself in space unless you bring some intentional co-contraction, especially in the trunk and the core. Oh my gosh. Yesterday I taught a, a core connection class and we focused on the pelvic floor and I just cued the entire time that pelvic floor lift. I mean, within 10 seconds, I was sweating just from the pelvic floor. That increased my body temperature. That blows my mind every time I teach that class, how much more I sweat by engaging those tiny muscles down there. <laughs> Yeah, I know. Because a lot of times we think about the d bigger muscles and then you get into the smaller proximal muscles for stability. And yeah, that's when you start like sweating and start shaking. Like some people will be like, is it normal to shake? And I'm like, yeah, because your muscles kind of figuring out like how to fire well and, sus and, and to sustain that. And some of those smaller muscle groups, you know, aren't called upon it as much like the pelvic floor. I think it's, that's what's so fun about the body and exploring is like, what is, if I have 15 minutes and I want to just really get a, like all, like I call it the one-stop shop. I'm going to come, I want to raise my heart rate. I want to get my blood flowing. I want to move my joints. I want to get my breath going and I want to sweat. I, I, it's, you can do that. You just have to be again, really intentional about how you're holding your stuff together. All right. Next question. Yoga Liddy 2020. Grinding teeth is a big issue, in my opinion. 
It may have something to do with the position of the skull. Thoughts? Absolutely. I think I actually, one of my PT corners recently was about this, talking about well, one of the very first ones I did, talking about tension in the jaw and how that's absolutely so closely related to posture, to obviously stress, but absolutely the position of the skull is synonymous with posture. You know, where, how are you holding that and what, you know, what are you doing to try to maintain that? And sometimes I, I will cue that during the stretch class. If you're clenching your teeth, relax. And a number of people kind of look at me like, how'd you know I was clenching my teeth? And I just, I know when you're holding your head down in a stretch, which is basically like poor posture sometimes, people, they, it's like a autonomic, you're not even thinking about it. So I agree with you. Yeah, I think that uh, the position of the head and in addition to that, the position of the shoulders, because I've known people who, had kind of chronically rounded shoulders. Therefore, they're probably, you know, their head is not in alignment either. And they have had terrible TMJ, you know, and they're doing all kinds of stuff inside the jaw, all kinds of opening and releasing. But when they actually started to get their joints stacked and their head back in space and their shoulders more neutral, that tension just dissipated and they were so surprised by it. So it is like we how we hold ourselves has a lot to do with the tension we create in various places that, you know, there's tension that's good. And then there's tension that's not good. That isn't going to serve us. So it's, I always go back to like that hanging the clothes on the hanger. If you, if you just sloppily put your shirt on the hanger or like a, a jacket and close the closet door and it's kind of slouched, that's the presentation it's going to hold when you bring it out. And so that's similar to your own soft tissue. If your head is bored, your shoulders are rounded, your, your jaw might be clenching, not even because you're tense, but because it's trying to help stabilize. It's a, those are, they're muscles that attempt to stabilize us in our more neutral posture when we're not there that really shouldn't be doing that job. And we, that's where, when we find excessive tension, um, in those areas, we need to get our posture in alignment. And that sometimes from a somatic and like, like that um, autonomic nervous system will do the job. That's a great question though. All right. Next question is from smells like lavender. What is the best pose slash yoga routine for chronic proximal hamstring pain? Well, we have addressed this in different ways. Um, for anyone who's not sure about what that means, chronic proximal hamstring strain, pain, just imagine sitting on your sit bones and them just kind of constantly aching. Is that because you're sitting on them or is that because there is a, a kind of chronic strain on that? That's the proximal hamstring where the hamstring muscle comes up and inserts on the ischial tuberosities, your sit bones. So as always, we have to go back to looking at how you're standing and then therefore how you move because how you stand is a big indicator for how you're going to move. So if you are tilted in the pelvis, anterior tilt, your tendency is your pelvis pitches forward and you're, you lean back into your hamstrings. They become lengthened. Your knees also will hyperextend. And so then that is not great because you've lengthened your hamstrings and your glutes and you've shortened your back extensors and your hip flexors. But that then sets up how you are to bend forward. So whether you're bending forward to get something off the ground um, or the many the mini forward folds that we do in a yoga practice, 
um, you're kind of, you're putting a lot of strain across that proximal tendon. This, you know, a physical therapist, I think Judith Lasseter was her name um, or is her name. She is a physical therapist and yoga teacher. And, and I think she did some kind of research and, and concluded that this proximal hamstring strain is, is almost isolated to the yoga population. Doesn't mean it doesn't happen elsewhere. Of course it can happen elsewhere, but it's that, that, that chronic strain that you're speaking of is a lot in the yoga population. And she surmised just like I would, and I'm sure Kristen would, it's from the position of the pelvis and then hinging, not hinging at the hips, but really moving in the spine and pulling. It's like you're pulling and bowing that. So what do you do about it? Well, first, that's why you have to address the reason why you have it first, because you can do all the exercises in the world, but if you continue to move the way you are, and this is what'll happen, and people have it for years because they don't change the way they're moving. So you've got to learn how to move from your hips with a lengthened spine, co-contracted trunk, like we were talking about, um, the importance of holding the core strong. Bend the knees, so you're, you're taking some of the pull of the hamstring out. And then you need to start strengthening because it has been lengthened and it's lengthened and it might feel tight, but it actually is not shortened tight. It's just mechanically has been loaded over and over again. Um, And it doesn't, it's not, it's, it has a feeling of tightness, but it's actually weakness. I will stop there and I'll let you talk about how to strengthen that area. No, I mean, if you, if you could see me, I'm sitting there going, uh-huh, mm-hmm, uh-huh. Everything you yeah. say is so true. It's that constant tension. I will take it one step further and that we are seeing now more in orthopedics. Uh, surgeons are looking more closely at that origin of the hamstring and we are seeing an increased incidence. And I think it's more because they're looking for it now where it is actually pulling away. And we see it in the yoga population, sometimes in the cyclists, you know, the people who also are overusing those hamstrings, even in a shortened position, that's just a constant that pull because they're, they're forward folded, you know, which is pulling from the other way sometimes too, on a bike, on a cycling. And they are now repairing them because I, I, I had a patient who had both of her uh, hamstring attachments at the ischial tuberosities were two thirds pulled away, like I detached. Did. So she was hanging by a thread, basically. And that's just, it's bad enough when they're fully attached. So they are doing surgical repairs of these things. So I would say if, what do you do to strengthen? You strengthen the heck out of the hips. You correct the pelvis, like you said. You you really address that anterior tilt because they're constantly, if you're constantly on tension in your everyday life because of that anterior tilt, and then you go to yoga and do forward folds with the knees extend and tension it even more. It's no wonder that that poor hamstring tendon is just, it's getting micro tears, micro tears, and then it starts to thicken and become less tensile, you know, less, less effective at its job of that kind of force attenuation from muscle to bone. If you address it there and you strengthen your hips, you strengthen the core, you strengthen the glutes, you probably strengthen the hamstrings because even though we call them, they're on tension all the time, it doesn't mean they're strong. They've, they've actually, you, they're almost, I think, worn out in a way mm-hmm. um, that you want to shorten them and strengthen them. But 
if you try all that and it's still around, I would highly recommend getting an, an, an MRI and just checking to see because I just I've, I've seen some really good results from these, and it really has just been the last few years in the clinic pretty darn new. Yeah. I think because incident, I think there's more yoga being done. So mm-hmm. I didn't see it 10 years ago because yoga wasn't as big. Yeah. The thing I'll add to that, the reason why the healing is so fraught is it also doesn't have a good blood supply there. So you're not only kind of re-inflicting the wound, so to speak, but you're, the healing capability is, is lessened there. And that's why a surgical option eventually might be um, the thing that would improve it. Uh, because it it's just especially if, if yeah yeah and especially You're sitting if on it yeah yeah I mean it's it I have never had that thank the Lord but I have seen so many people and I know it literally is that that this is what when people talk about the yoga butt they're not talking about the glorious shape of the yoga butt they're talking about the yoga butt pain because when it's really prominent when you're sitting on your sit bones because you're sitting on this kind of wounded area. Um, and then it become, and then sometimes you start moving even in a forward fold and it feels okay. And you're like, Hey, this actually isn't bad. And then all of a sudden an hour after yoga practice, you feel like crap, you're sitting on it and it returns again. Well, it's just because you're getting a better blood flow all the way around. And with that, you might, that kind of overrode some of the pain signals, but at some point people will feel it in yoga as well. And you just don't want it to, to lead to that place. The only other thing I would add um, to the strengthening component is actually bringing awareness there. So I'll have people like actually grab their sit bones, either in a bridge pose, um, in some of the ab work we do, in locust, and ha- and kind of squeeze, I, I say squeeze your sit bones, which you're not. You're squeezing the, the, the stuff around them, which would include these proximal hamstrings. And then squeeze your fingers into the sit bones, sit bones back into the fingers. So you're actually creating that tension there because there is a lack of tension and a lack of connection. So it's going back to that, give yourself more feedback. And this could be a really, I've, this has worked really well with people who have had that chronic that hasn't been years and years, uh, that is more relatively new or they did it one time. Um, but and and then please stay away from really big hamstring stretches. You know where you're doing like extending that leg and then trying a bind and all this stuff. It's just you you will you will pop it. I mean, especially if it's been frayed and it just there's there's not enough tension and you're just you're putting a lot of load on it and force. Okay, there we go. All right, next question, Patri Sex Sexologa. <laughs> Nothing about uh, really, um, that name is not, I'm not saying it right, right. But anyway, adjustments for carrying angle, which is a great, great question. Can you talk a little bit about carrying angle and the impact that, you know, any adjustments we might need for that? Now, I'm assuming, are we talking about the Q angle or the carrying angle of the elbow? I think she's probably, she says carrying angle, so it's probably the carrying angle of the elbow. Yeah, so that's basically talking about there's like a natural what we would call a valgus of of that of your elbow as it. So you think of your arm, your humerus comes down, kind of flush with the side of the body, and then your forearm comes naturally just a little bit away. And some people will have longer, more um, obtuse or more acute 
angles. And that certainly can play a role on, particularly in something like yoga, where you're weight bearing through the hands. So like normal activities of daily living, carrying angle of the arm, not not as impactful. But then you come into yoga where we're doing either you know, inversions or side planks and planks. And suddenly, particularly if you're getting that lockout, um, the hyperextension, um, I think that's where the carrying angle that, that you're just, God, it's God-given, it's what you're born with, can can play a role. And just bringing it back to, I don't know if it was this call or last week's, but that kind of co-contraction around the joint. So you're creating an active stability versus settling into where your body naturally wants to go. Because if you have that increased carrying angle, you know, it, it, it can really be, you know, wreak havoc on some of those passive structures. What do you think? I agree. And then just to add to the carrying angle, I always give this example. Women have a bigger one than men because we have wider hips. So carrying angle is if you're just walking and your arms naturally are, you know, swaying, swinging, you don't want to pop, bop your arm on your hips, right? So there's an angle out and women's are a little bit more because our hips are wider. Honestly, I don't see a lot of excessive carrying angles. A lot of people will have someone in their life say, oh, you have a big carrying angle. And then they kind of get attached to that. In in really the thousands of bodies I've seen, I might've seen four or five that were like, whoa, like we really, I really needed to give them extra feedback. So first of all, I would say, don't assume you have a big carrying angle because I don't see that many people who do. But say you do, just like Kristen was saying, you've got to bring extra awareness to it. We don't use the word microbend elbows because we want that. We want that straight arm. You want your joints stacked. You want that transference of energy from the floor through your arm, but you don't want it locked. And locked usually tends to mean passive. You're just kind of hanging on the joint. And somebody with a carrying angle could really lock and it would look like their elbow was pointing inward and 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 it can look odd but with those people when i come up and i say hey get your triceps going more get more rigid in your forearm because the forearm ha- there's two bones that can spin a little bit and with the carrying angle they can really spin it around and face that elbow way forward so if they get tension below and above the elbow often that is enough to really have that 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 soft tissue muscular support and not go into the excess so for that person it might actually feel like they're a little bit bent in their mind uh, because they're so used to going into that more excessive angle but with the muscle tension they should be actually stacking uh, the lower arm bone and the upper arm bone more and it should be fine so carrying angles don't bother me but I will also say that if somebody tells you you have an excessive or a large carrying angle, don't just assume that to be true <laughs> because I it's, I just don't see it that, that common. It's kind of more like an outlier. Um, so, you know, even if you don't have a carrying angle, you want to have that tension around the elbow to give it support. And that's just, that's just, that's like around the knee. You don't want your knee just passively locking back. You want to have some tension around it to give it support. So the energy exchange from the floor, from your foot into your leg um, is, is like a current and it doesn't get kind of a little bit, you know, leaked out in your, in your knee joint or in your elbow joint. Yeah. And definitely starting from the proximal side. I think, you know, as soon as you cue someone to get that scapula set, 
it's almost like, oh, you know, the, 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 the elbow figures it out. Yeah. Cause you see those people like inside plank and whether or not they have a carrying angle that's excessive, if they've gotten a habit of kind of ramming into their elbow, their shoulder will give it away. They just kind of push that humerus forward. So when you tell them to set the scapula, which will help down the chain, it's it's amazing how much that helps. So just be mindful of all those alignment principles, which really do matter and add up when you're you know stacking multiple joints on top of each other. Well, as always, this was a pleasure. I love your questions. Feel free to write us at any time. You can find Kristen on Instagram at kbwilliams99. And you can find me at lara.hyman. You can direct message us and ask us questions. You can also email lara at lityoga.com. We love your questions. We love answering them. And we hope you enjoy hearing them. And thank you as always, Kristen, for your genius. You're welcome, Lara. <laughs> love you. Thank- I love you. Thank you all, everybody. As always, pulling for you.